It's lovely to be with you, and uh, it's a great privilege for me to ask you to open up your Bibles or your devices to Psalm 1. Uh, I have got it on screen uh, today, um, but uh, it's always good to bring that along, because I hope that you are thinking whilst I'm preaching and you're willing to challenge what I say from God's Word. Um, what I want to entitle today's message is, What Authority Will Govern Your Life? That's what I want to... Uh, Present to you today. It's the introductory sermon to Psalm chapter one. Oh, Psalm chapter one. Psalm one, and uh, Joey's going to be kicking off part two next week. So I just want to lay a platform of what we're wanting to do. But um, if you've been part of our church for some time, you would have known. Or if you here last Sunday, we believe we are a church that is called to love. Let's do it again. We're called to love. Love. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Love out. Well done. And um, part of what we feel God really calling us back to as a church is this wonderful, rock-solid Word of God that uh, we have as His followers to build our life on. And so what we wanted to journey into is, is look at how do we relate to God's Word? Why is it as Christians, and, I, and if we're all honest here, please, and I'm with you, if we had to say, you know, we've got all this access to God's Word, right, on our cell phones, WhatsApp's come through. Man, you can even get it as little uh, screensavers on your computer. <laughs> we got it on the radio if you listen to Link. Why is it that we are so neglectful of reading God's Word? Not only of the content of God's Word, but also its message, what it means. And we are in a fascinating time in history where previously people couldn't read God's Word because it wasn't accessible. Now, we have God's Word as being probably the most accessible it's ever been, but so little read. And I want to point out to you, it is a cultural problem you and I are facing today. And I'm going to be honest, I'm going to try and preach way out of my comfort zone. I'm going to try and stretch our minds. I have been grappling with this thing for a long time. So I'm hoping today to try and help you understand what you are up against as a Christian in terms of some of the obstacles of relating to God's Word as it has been intended. And if you are new here today, and perhaps a friend invited you and you're looking in, it's a great Sunday to come. I'm going to stretch your mind a bit as to what culture offers versus what God's Word offers. And I hope we can start a conversation and around these things that really matter. Remember the, the purpose of preaching, ladies and gentlemen, it's not to make you feel necessarily good. It can. The purpose of preaching is to get you to think. To get you to think about the things that matter. You know, life's busy, right? Goodness me. I mean, to get Sarah to school in the morning, I have to do five million different things. By the time I get to work, I mean, you don't think, you're thinking about getting the lunchbox and the baking day tuck money and this, and then it's this party ring that you have to bring cupcakes for. I mean, I'm sorry, as you can see, the opening start of the year was a bit stressful for me. We don't stop and think about the big things, right? That is the mark of good preaching. And the feeling follows the fact. But today, I want us to open up to Psalm 1, to this glorious psalm, and uh, listen carefully to what it has to offer us today. Let's read from verse 1. There we go. Blessed. Oh, wow. Blessed is the man. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and on his law. He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. (laughs) Wow. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to remind you, we are reading a song today. Psalms, it's the hymnal of God's people, Israel. And I don't know about you, but I love music, right? Music has a way of getting to the real soul of a person and being able to express things that they're longing to express. And for you, if you're wanting to read what real faith looks like in the Christian walk, if you want to know what faith with skin looks like, read Psalms. It is probably one of the most honest and, and areas of the Bible where people do real. They do real life. And so part of that is the Psalms is interested in, in life, in what really matters. And if you notice, my first point today is this, is it's offering us or opening up a topic which every human being is interested in. Is blessed is the man, the path to blessedness. I tell you what every human being is after. You can nod if you agree with me. You can shake your head if not. I'd love to touch you after the service. Don't you think the one thing that human beings want in this world is happiness? We want to live a happy life, not so? Have you ever heard of a person who at the end of their life says, yes, that life was as miserable as possible? Ever heard that? Friends, from day one, there has been the heartbeat of the human soul has been a search for happiness. Do you know that we have thirsty souls? And we are looking, we are looking for this thing called blessedness. It's an old-fashioned word. I just like to combine the two, blessed happiness. What do I mean by that? Well, I had a picture of um, what this could be like in Hollywood. You know, Hollywood loves to dramatize these things. And my picture of what blessed happiness is, is, you know, there's been this massive fight scene, and there's the, 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 the hero, the man lying there, and he's bleeding to death, and the woman that is like he's been fighting for, she runs to him, and she grabs his head in his arms, and like, Jeff, Jeff, don't die, Jeff, don't leave me, Jeff, don't leave me. And Jeff goes up, oh, you got to let me go. No, I can't let you go. I can't let you go. Don't leave me here. He said, I've had a blessed life. Let me go. It's been full. It's been good. It's time to let me go. I can just imagine that sense of, man, this life's been good. That's what we're talking about, blessed happiness. It is this feeling of deep satisfaction, fulfillment that lasts It is this undercurrent of joy and peace and contentment. It's this feeling that your life mattered. It had a purpose. At the end of the day, when you you look back on your life, you go, wow, that meant something. That's what we're talking about, blessed happiness. And if you want to encapsulate it from a biblical point of view, I would say this. It is living a life that experiences God's hand upon it, blessing it, sustaining it, supporting it. That's blessed happiness, friends. Anybody interested in a life like that? Oh, yes. Can I get a nod? 
Now, I tell you, this is something that is very real for us because, and I'm going to explain to you in a moment, after the 2008 financial crash, which we are living in right now, there has been this global gloominess, not so. I don't think I ever remember in my short life, three decades plus, of a time when people were so pessimistic about the future. And that is not just in our country. I want to say it is a global narrative. It's a, it's a global concern. And, and I think people are asking, is it really possible to be happy in this life? I think that's a big question. I, I shared it with Joe the other day. I read a fascinating article on BBC about how the bestsellers are no longer your, your sort of uh, major novel writers. It's, it's old Greek philosophers. Aristotle, Plato, the Stoics. Because guys are starting to, how can I find happiness in this life? Because the last great swan song of materialism was smashed, 2008. The, the global climate change crisis is the reality of there not being enough resources on planet Earth to sustain the American dream. So what is society left with? And friends, today, I want to say Psalm 1's answer to you. Can you have a blessed life? Can you have a fulfilling, rich, purposeful life? And, and Joe's going to point out next week, not just this life, but the next, is a yes. The Psalm 1, remember Psalm, the Psalms are interested in life. Is a yes, it's possible. It's possible you have the kind of life I've just described. This is not just for a few persons in life. It is for anybody. It says, blessed is the man, the woman, singular. Anybody here today that want a life like this, it's available to you. It's available to you. Ah, but this is the point of my sermon. How we access or get this blessed happiness is determined by what authority you will let govern your life. It will be determined by what authority you let govern your life. And this is a big deal in Scripture. My second point is this, is how not to enter into this blessed happiness. The Bible offers only two options for this life. You might, I'll explain why it might sound a bit arrogant, but, but essentially speaking, there are only two ways you can find this happiness or what, what offer this kind of happiness. It's two opposing systems or worldviews of authority that tell you how to live your life. Okay? The first is this, and it comes through in verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It is... Summarized by this world, by this word called this world. That's the first system of thinking, the outlook and the framework of this world. The second is the outlook and the framework of this book, the Bible. And the reason why I can assert to you today that there are only two ways to govern your life is because if you read the Bible, which I hope after this sermon you will be more interested in ever in doing, is you will notice that the God of the Bible only allows two camps in this world. Those that are interested in fearing him, in following him, in pleasing him, in obeying him, that's what comes through in this word, or those that are not. And I, I would put it to you this morning, it's not, easy, it's not, it's not difficult to, to, to point out that society, in its vast generalization, is not interested in God 
the God of the Bible. Not so? That's the, the counsel of the wicked means. The wicked means you're not really interested in fearing God or to please him. The other is you're not really interested in, in, in what, what, what are his commands, in keeping his, his commands. The world is not interested in the God of the Bible. And so there are only two systems that essentially, if you are going to take this book seriously, you can follow. It is the philosophy of this world. That's why Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, its thinking, its outlook, or the law of the Lord, the instruction of God. And I want to stress this morning, this is very important if you're following me, you're doing very well, 10 o'clock, I'm watching your eyes fixed on me, is that it is very helpful to know that these two systems are totally opposed to each other. It's important you understand there is no middle ground, and I'm going to do my best out of my comfort zone this morning to explain why, but it says in James chapter 4, verse 4, friendship with the world. He's not talking about making buddies that don't yet know Jesus. He's talking about friendship with the way of thinking, the way of processing and seeing life the way the world does, makes you an enemy of God. You cannot serve two masters. In this thing, there are only two authorities for your life, this world or God's way. And so I want to assess today why which one you choose matters. And so let's look at the first option, which is the philosophy of this world. What is out there that says you govern your life by? You still with me? Can you give me a nod? Good. What is the mantra today that says this is the authority by which I live my life? I'll, I'll summarize it in one sentence. It is this. Whatever feels good to me is right. That's it. Whatever feels good to me is right. That is society's authority. And because of it, it means the highest authority in my life is me, and the highest authority in your life is you. Because who gets to determine what they feel is right? It's the person. And so whatever feels good to me is right means I am my highest authority. And uh, I'll explain it to you a bit like this. Have you ever heard, it, heard people talk of this? What works for you works for you. And what works for me, works for me. Ever heard that? That is the essence of, of, of postmodern authority. And friends, I have to point out to you today, it is a philosophy that is not interested in facts. Not interested. It's about feeling. And heaven forbid you offend somebody's feelings even if the facts are there. It's called political correctness, Right? And what has happened is this, is that we don't think as a society anymore, we feel. And what feels right for me is good for me. What feels right for you is good for you. And I am my highest authority, you are your highest authority. There is no external authority to refer to at all. Are you with me? And so what happens is we are an a historical society means the past does not matter. What happened over thousands of years of society and philosophy and science doesn't matter. All that matters in my life is my experience of it. Anything outside of my experience is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. And that has some really dangerous consequences I want to unpack today. Now, I chose probably the worst sign to try this, but I'm going to do it because I feel very strongly about this. All you teachers here, I'm going to try and do a history lesson. You can quit me afterwards, right? 
How did we get to this place today where this is how society operates? Well, I want to take us back to the 19th century, which is the 1800s. You know, Queen Victoria, it was the era of the stiff upper lip. Oh. And this was the age where, I tell you, it's very, you must remember this, was very different to today. It was the age of ultimate optimism. The Industrial Revolution had just happened, the steam engine and great scientific advancements, empire, new colonies, unprecedented wealth. It was the only time in the history of the world that in Britain, in a country, you went into the shop the next day and your pound got more than it did yesterday. Imagine that. Not, not inflation, deflation. And what happened was, it was there was a supreme self-confidence that grew in the mind. And it came through, through these scientific advancements, but also through the rise of Darwinism. You know Charles Darwin, Origin of Species? And for the first time, atheists, they were around then. Spurgeon had a tough time with him. But they said, we finally have a, a scientific theory that can explain the origin of, of mankind. Although Darwin never claimed that in his, in his thesis. That can explain away God. That we can have an atheistic, rationalistic outlook on life. And everything was supremely rational. It was the uh, absolute confidence of the human mind to determine what is right and wrong. And what happened was this. For the first time in the history of the world, there was the higher criticism movement of the Bible. Never before, until the the, the 19th century, did anyone ever question that the Bible was authoritative. And what these scholars did, it was damaging. My friends, they ripped this book apart and said, well, we, we can sort of by a certain analysis and deductions find out which little segments possibly could be true, but th- this is revelation. What nonsense. What nonsense. We're scientists. We're rational beings. And what happened was this was, by the end of the 19th century, the whole of human society, particularly in the West, had this mantra. If you read literature from the time of, we're coming of age. Utopia is on the horizon, ladies and gentlemen. We're shrugging off these uh, religious fairy tales. Ah, oh, but my friend, if you know the opening of the 20th century, Utopia wasn't around the corner. The Great World War I was around. And then, I tell you, humanity got to see, far from it being mature and rational and collected, you had one set of humanity opening up canisters of mustard gas to sear the opponent's eyes to choke their lungs with burning flames of fire, chlorine, to send hundreds of thousands of men over the trench lines for one or two kilometers of trench warfare, of of, of territory. It was devastating. Friends, it resulted in a cataclysmic attack or or collapse on authority. Because you know what was devastating about the Great World War, the Great Great War, World War I, was that at the end of it, no one could explain why anyone had fought it. That was the problem except a bunch of statesmen who did it for ego. And before, your politicians, your monarchies fell, man, governments fell, they were all traditional authority systems. And states, states, governments fell, statesmen, it was a, a huge uh, damage, uh, did huge damage to, to statesmen's uh, influence because it was their fault that the, the Great War happened. Even the church, you had your vicar saying, you uh, preaching a holy war, you had to go and fight the German Hun. It caused a devastating erosion, collapse of traditional authority structures in society. And it wasn't the end, it was the beginning. Because after the Great War came the Great Depression in the 1930s. I mean, the, the 19th century, these guys were wealthy. It ripped their foundation of confidence in their wealth massively. 
And then there was the rise of fascism, and then the, the Second World War arrived. And, and isn't it horrific to see the ethnic cleansing of six million Jews? The dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, it was devastating. Tens of thousands of people burned to death through nuclear energy. And instead of science being the great promise of the 19th century saying, this is going to solve all of our problems. Instead, science was becoming rapidly the source of potential destruction of the human race. Are you all with me? Can you give me a nod? Because what arose was the Cold War. And let me tell you, to live in that day and age was a terrifying space. Some numbskull could have accidentally pushed the fire button on one atomic weapon, which would have done a whole retaliation of other atomic weapons, and everyone could have been blown up in just one day. And so this is what's happened. People began to say, what is the point of all this rational thinking? Of thinking about tomorrow and living upright lives. All we've got is today. We might be blown up by tomorrow. And so what matters is not this rational thinking and these old systems of self-control. What matters is doing whatever you can today to experience happiness. It led to the hippie movement. Excuse the pun, it was to get as high as possible. Any of you watched footage of Woodstock here? Can you put up your hand? I've got to be careful because there's some nudity which I came across. But it was like humanity was unleashed, unshackled from any external authority. It was a revolution, but a revolution not of just sexual ethics, of the fact that there is no longer any external authority except my experience. My happiness, my feeling of being good, that's existentialism, is all that matters is my existence and my experience of existence. Nothing else matters. And what that has meant for us is, it is the rise of the liberal movements, Cast off these old fuddy-duddy, old-fashioned morals and ethics, man. Live for today. Seize the day. Get as much pleasure as you can for today, for tomorrow you die. And what happened was, for a period of time, things were okay because there was this great promise of capitalism and materialism saying, hey, amass a lot of stuff and you'll be happy, you'll be fine. And then 2008 happened. And goodness me, it has left the world reeling. And so, my friends, what is left in terms of the authority over your life and what society offers? This mantra of what is good for you is good for you, and what is good for me is good for me. We are in a crisis. And I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem is this. If what works for you works for you, and what works for me works for me, how do you agree on what doesn't work for anybody? I said again. If what works for you works for you and what works for me works for me, how do we agree on what works or doesn't work for anybody? What are we appealing to here? There's nothing. Because you're your highest authority, I'm my highest authority. How do we get to a place where we can determine what is concrete truth and fact on which we can build our lives? You can't. To the postmodern mind, truth is just a subjective feeling. To the postmodern mind, 
Truth does not exist. And what it is doing is it is leading to absolute chaos. Chaos. Now remember, I'm getting you to think about what you're going to build your life on. Because this is the prevailing philosophy today of how you should govern your life. And I'll give you a few examples, and they are sensitive, and I want you to hear my heart here. This is not trying to explain away the struggle of people experiencing this, what I'm, trying to sh- uh, what I'm going to share in just a moment. What I am going to show is we're not interested in facts. We're not interested in, in debating around facts. We're interested in feeling and the crisis that it's causing. Anybody, anyone here keeping up with the transgender debate? Can I just get a nod? Do you know what I'm talking about with the transgender debate? In other words, if I'm chromosomally female, if I have an X and X chromosome, but I feel like a man, I am a man. If I have a chromosomal set of X and Y and I'm male, but I feel like a female, I am female. It's not about the fact of what the chromosome says. It's about the feeling of the person. And my friend, to try and have a debate around what is truth and where do we work from as a framework, it doesn't exist because there is no external authority. You with me? And so what is society appealing to? You can't. You can't say, this is, a, this is a male, this is a female. It is entirely experiential, and it's leading to chaos in public toilets, in schools. And these are not Christians who are saying this. These are men and women who don't even believe in the Bible. They are alarmed at the society that is starting to be formed by liberalism that is being unshackled to any scientific truth. And so, that's just the first thing. A second, again, I want you to hear my heart here. I am not trying to explain the angst of trying to live with these tensions. I'm trying to show that there is no external framework to work them out. It's the same as same-sex relationships. And I know many people struggle with this, even Christians. But you see, as the church, what is our coming into this, uh, this dialogue? Is it because I feel attracted to another person, therefore I am? homosexual in orientation? Or do we have an external authority that we appeal to? And so, I'll be honest, in the debate, people don't care about facts. And so Romans 1 will say, if you look at nature and you can study nature and see that there are laws in nature, how can you not believe in a lawgiver? That's the point. You can unpack all of these wonderful orderliness and, and you, can, you can assess systems and ecosystems and, and ways of, of, of species and their similarities but you, and, and all of these laws of nature, but you can't agree that there is a lawgiver. There's a problem. And the reality is this, is what it comes down to is when you look at the design of just at the level of nature, of a male and a female, the compatibility of Sexual organs, Paul will argue and say, in nature you see God's design. Now again, I'm going to be very loving here. That does not explain away the difficulty of struggling through what it means to wrestle with same-sex attraction. And if you're here, you are welcome here. But it is a wrestling through what is our external authority. And my friend, if I back off from mentioning this today, I am eroding something wonderful that is on offer to to you in your life. Blessedness. And there are many people, and let me tell you, there is nothing special about same-sex attraction. It goes across the board. 
every single human being struggles with a specific sin. What is your authority going to be? Because if it is how I feel, what is, makes it right, you are on a course, my friend, to where society is. Chaos. Chaos. You will have nothing as a pilot, as a guide, as a compass for your life. What you will experience is entirely subjective and it will lead you down whatever the day brings. I wake up feeling one way, I live one way. I wake up feeling another way, I live another day. That, that, is the, that is the essence of the chaos society is experiencing right now. There is nothing solid. And what you land up with is this. Anyone know the guy, Ted Bundy? Raped and murdered 30 plus girls and women. Gets interviewed the day before, just before his, his execution in the States. And I think the, the, the interviewer must have asked this kind of question. He said, you know, don't you regret what you've done? You know what his answer is? No? How can we in an age which we've explained away God and all of the old-fashioned traditionalism of the day, how can you tell me what I did was wrong if it felt right for me? No one can answer him. He says, morals are merely a value-based judgment. No facts, it's just feeling. And the world looks on that and they have got no answer. I want to say to you, may I lovingly say, if you are struggling with the philosophy of atheism and the religion of atheism, it is a religion and I'll explain why in a moment. Can I say to you, I was intimidated by these guys. I'm not intimidated anymore. The foundation of atheists, Peter Atkins, I listened to a brilliant uh, chemist professor. Do you know what... They are so good at attacking the Christian faith, they are terrible at defending their own. Do you know what the essence of atheism is? Is that nothing rolled into something. Now, if you've ever had to try and think that was a logical statement, something to base your life on, to exclude God on, you need more faith, my friend, to believe that statement. And that thing, nothing rolling into something by accident. I mean, the, 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 the logical brain, it defies all reason. And the problem is this, and you watch, atheism is collapsing for this reason. It can produce no moral framework for society. Because after all, what do you have to appeal to? No God. No external authority. It is the unleashing of carnal man's desire as his or her final authority. And I ask you today, ladies and gentlemen, what kind of society is it producing? Where are people queuing up to go to? Which countries? Can I have some names? UK, next one. Australia, next one. New Zealand, next one. US and Canada. All those countries have had the Christian gospel and Bible in their countries for centuries. Anybody lining up to go into Muslim countries here? Anyone lining up to go into Saudi Arabia? Except as an expat to just do your two years so you can get cash, you can buy a home back in South Africa. Anybody lining up in a Buddhist country? Anybody lining up in a Hindu country? Anyone lining up in a communist country? Let me tell you, my friends, the facts of society show that the God of the Bible produces the kind of society everybody wants to be a part of. But you see, and I agree with you, it is declining. 
Because the further away you move from the God of the Bible, the increase in chaos. And can I say, I'm trying to read a book by Bertrand Russell. He's not a Christian. I'm trying to listen to these guys carefully. They're brilliant intellects. I marvel at the gift of their minds. But I have been reading philosophy. after He writes a book, The History of, the Western, of Western Philosophy. I'm telling you, it is so depressing because you realize man has had so many attempts to get this utopia and they've failed every time. The brutality of the Greek civilization, the brutality of the Roman civilization, the brutality of what these various philosophies have produced. Oh, when you get to the God of the Bible, you get enlightenment, you get philosophy flourishing, you're getting science flourishing. When, when the Reformation happened, it changed the course of society. Freedom of conscience, toleration of, of religion. When there was this burst of the truth in the Bible gripping hearts of society, it created the kind of societies people wanted to be a part of. So I'll ask you again this morning. What philosophy are you going to build your life on? Because what has crept into the church is this. This philosophy, postmodern philosophy of saying, I am my highest authority, has done great damage to our relationship to the Word of God. Because essentially, my friends, brothers and sisters, we feel competent to run our lives on our own. We pick with Scripture. We say, well, this feels good for me, so I'll, I'll stick to that. That part doesn't feel so good. Maybe that's for somebody else. We dip in according to our experience. We feel no sense of need to be guided under an external authority. The whole world tells you, you're competent to judge. You're competent to make your decisions. You're competent to run your life. Oh, but what kind of society has that produced? Has it been good for families? Has it been good for marriages? Has it been good for children? Friends, we have to think about these things. Oh, this is, is society what you're wanting to model your life on? I, I have to say to you, I, I cannot go down that road. Chaos. Self-destruction. Despair. You see, my friends... We have got a wonderful opportunity here today is to re-engage with God through his word. How do we enter into blessed happiness? I'm just going to touch on this and I'm going to close soon. Joe's going to handle it this, this next week. Ah, oh, verse 2 tells us there is a better way. There is a better way to live life. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law, the instruction of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. You know, the joy of studying theology, you know what it's been for me, is realizing that these, these higher critics of the 19th century have been proved fatally wrong. Over the, the 20th century, the Bible, after being tested and attacked, is standing head and shoulders like never before. Historically, archaeologists are digging up sites that affirm its historicity. They're just catching up with Scripture. Linguistically, I want to say to you, studying it, it is the most accurate document in the history of the world. And I, you know, I, you probably don't think about this, but do you know that I have made this my life's job, my life's work? It better matter, right? I'm sitting, not sitting to just get a salary and hope you don't realize that I don't put any work in. I have to attack this book knowing that you are going to do so every week of my life. 
And can I say to you, the more I have dealt with the scripture, its coherency has been mind-blowing. I can open up to Genesis chapter 1 and see the narrative and coherency. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, this book holds together. And you know what's amazing about this Bible is it answers the deepest questions to our lives. It was so depressing hearing scientists being able to acknowledge, not all of them, that science cannot answer the deepest questions of where we've come from, why we're here, and where this is all going. See, knowing about the world is not enough. Knowing why we're in the world is what makes you live. You open up this Bible, you see the dignity of mankind being made in the image of God. You take that away. It's a free for all. You see this Bible start to unpack God as the creator and as the Lord of heaven and earth. That far from this being a random act of events, there's design, there's purpose, there is a long game view of where this is all going to go and why this is all happening. I ask you, can you live your life like that? The society won't give you any of that. Ah, this scripture, let me tell you, it proves true. How do I know that? Well, you can choose to believe me or not. It's true in my life. I did Auntie Molly's funeral on Friday, 92 years old. I left that, I will never be the same again after that funeral. What was the mark of decades of devotion to God through his word? Was a woman who had this fragrance of uprightness, integrity, love, solidity. She had this incredible character that was praiseworthy from start to finish. If that's what the Word of God produces in a person, I want that for me. Her whole family standing there saying, this woman had a huge impact in my life. She set the example of what a beautiful human being can be like. My friends, today, what is your view of this book? Some might say, I don't hear God speaking to me. Really? Really? Do you want to know the mind of God? Do you want to know his thoughts about you and the world? Do you want to find your will for your life? Do you want to find meaning and purpose like you've never had before? Do you want to know where this is all going? Do you want to know why you have an eternal soul that can't be satisfied with temporary things? Do you want to know why you exist? Is you exist for this God that made you, my friend, and he is so, so longing, so determined to have you back. Your life goes beyond this grave. Far from it being this meaningless existence of you might only have today and then it's all done. My friend, you have an eternity ahead of you, and the more you grasp that, the more ready you are to live. The more ready you're able to look at this life and become like this man or woman who devotes himself to this trustworthy book, like a, a tree that bends and waves with the wind of this world, but its roots are deep and firm. The rest of mankind flapping, oh, that politician, oh, this, oh, that. And Christians being so grounded in God's word, knowing we know who's in control, we know, this is, we know that this is all going, we know the answers to your deep questions, and we're ready to give it. What a privilege. 
What a joy to live our lives by this rock-solid Word of God that is inspired. It is trustworthy. The one who made us, who knows how to help us to live, has expressed it in God's Word. Ah, but you see, the crisis we experience is this. Is the wrestle between whether or not we will decide to no longer be the final authority in our lives. Can I tell you why atheists so desperately want atheism to be true? It's not that their mind can't cope with the logical facts that there is a God. It's because they don't want their lives to be accountable to anybody. That's the problem. And the crisis, Christians, here today, and the crisis of your life, my friend, is who is going to be in control of your life. And it is something we must confront every day. Will you trust your subjective feelings or will you choose to treasure and, and, and live off and imbibe and eat what is rock solid? We have a golden opportunity to live a life that embraces the abundant life. We don't know how much time we've got this side of the grave, but my friends, I hope you like me, I want to make the most of it. And it comes by recognizing the gift, the gift, the gift of God's revelation to the world, tried and tested through generation after generation, that those who apply this teaching are never the same again. Will that be you? Will that be you? Will you take up this book and see its value, its pricelessness, its power?